You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do whatever that you like, do whatever, baby, cause I, oh, I don't care, yeah, yeah, it's alright, alright, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. My name is Danny Anderson, and joining me today, I'm going to have a couple of special guests to talk about Dante in a very specific context. Uh, So I'm going to introduce them in a second here, but I just want to make a couple of announcements uh, about the show itself. We've been pretty busy here lately this month. I just want to give you a heads up of what's coming up. uh, I've got like six or seven episodes to record this month, uh, and so this is one of those. I also am going to be talking to C. Derek Varn uh, about this old Soviet horror film about a witch uh, that's based on a Gogol short story called V, uh, which uh, is going to be, I'm actually very much looking forward to. We've got a show about uh, Kurosawa's Rashomon scheduled. We're going to do our Chick Track show here pretty soon. Uh, and so there's a lot of interesting things coming down the pike uh, to keep you uh, hopefully entertained and enlightened. Um, and I also want to make another pitch for our little upcoming contest. Be thinking of ideas for uh, fake ads that we could read during the show every now and then. Actually, after our the last re- most recent episode about uh, Fearless Girl dropped, I received a feedback. Somebody's working on a product to help me with my uh, uh, tendency to paint with broad brush strokes. And so there's a product they're designing <laughs> um, to, uh, to save me from that. And so um, I look forward to reading that text. And so um, let's get into the show here. So joining me today is uh, Nathan Gilmore from the Christian Humanist podcast. Nathan, how's it going over there today? Oh, going pretty well. We're having a uh, weird cold morning in Georgia. Usually this late in April, it doesn't get this cold, but uh, it was 40 degrees when I came in this morning. It's always with the weather with you. Um, <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> and now you got me to say, it's actually snowing here today. What is this, March uh, 7th or April 7th? And it's uh, actually snowing here in, uh, on the mountain here in Pennsylvania, which I guess isn't all that surprising. So, um, And Nathan is here because Nathan is uh, the person that I know personally that knows the most about Dante. And he is here to help me with my conversation with the star of our show today, uh, Neil Gussman. Uh, Neil, how's it going? It's going great. I'm in Lancaster, so I, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on the eastern side of the state. So I think I have the best weather of the three of you, at least from, from the sound of it. It's just 50 degrees and nice out. It's April, basically, right? So, yeah, it's uh, April. <laughs> <laughs> well, Neil is a, a listener to the show, and uh, he's given us some awesome feedback uh, on on several episodes. I think he's a, an acquaintance of Carter, who's a who's a frequent guest on the show at this point. Um, and Carter's actually going to be on our Rashomon episode, by the way. Um, 
but Neil uh, contacted me months ago, and it's been months since I've been uh, we've been talking about this episode uh, about talking about Dante. Uh, do, Neil, do you want to tell us about the specific context in which you um, have studied and, and, and engaged with that text? And that will be sort of the subject of the show for our guests here. Well, the Dante for me is very much connected with the army. I, I served on active duty. I enlisted during the Vietnam War and served in the Cold War for about seven years. And then when I got out, I went to college when I was almost 30. And in the first course I had, I read Inferno and I was in love. I didn't know it existed. And um, over the 30 years after that, from 1980 at Penn State University, um, over the next 30 years, I read seven different translations of the Divine Comedy. And um, <clears throat> I never learned Italian, but I, I just became a Dante drooling fan. Couldn't get enough of Dante. Well, I re-enlisted in the Army in 2007 after getting out in 1980 and went to Iraq in 2009. So we arrived at a place called Camp Adder in the sort of the, the base closest to Kuwait. And we arrived in late May, well, started to arrive in early May. But by June, that Camp Adder had set the temperature record for Iraq in its recorded history. And right around that time, uh, they there was huge sandstorms. They grounded a lot of our aircraft. I was with the uh, with an aviation unit that flew helicopters, and I went to the recreation people who run the the various things to do when you're not flying or out on a convoy, and asked about starting a C.S. Lewis book group. Well, they had just had somebody want to start a dead poet society and then they got transferred to the other side of the country so they said well could you do this dead poet society and and given that it was 133 that day i thought okay i'll do that if we could do inferno and they thought that was a riot you know so we're in a sandstorm it's 133 and and agreed to make a weekly um a weekly meeting, just people who would want to read the Divine Comedy while they were in Iraq. And so this Dead Poet Society, I ended up with about 20 soldiers who were never there every week. It was Every week was a different group of maybe 8 to 12, but there were 20 total. They were mostly young, and they mostly hadn't done that well in high school, but decided, you know, as long as they were stuck here, they could read a great book. And I thought, wow, this was great. So we had, uh, so that's how the book group started. So I was there weekly until the fall when I went on flight status, and then it got a little more irregular. But yeah, we started reading a couple of cantos every week. That's awesome, um, and I think what the what a great um, like backdrop for reading that poem, right? Um, and 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 to us here, you know, in sort of civilian land where we all live uh, now, uh, that seems like such a strange setting. And so one of one of the reasons I brought Nathan on the show is I know that he's taught 
Inferno, you know, quite a lot, and and he's read it many times himself. And I want to ask him about his experience in teaching that poem, and maybe even the whole comedy, uh, in a more sort of conventional environment. And I'm hoping that that gives us sort of a, a, a context to sort of compare and contrast what was really unique about what Neil was doing in Iraq. And so, Nathan, do you want to talk about uh, Dante for you and, and your personal and professional experience? Certainly. I've been reading Dante since high school. Uh, you know, read him, you know, actually in a course setting uh, as a freshman in college. Uh, we read the Inferno together, and then uh, we had to choose a medieval book to present to the class, and I picked the Paradiso to do that. Uh, that was a mistake when I was 19 because I could not understand the party. So when I was 19, but, um, you know, lived to tell the tale, started reading it pretty frequently. And, and, and at this point, I think I've read the entire Commedia something like 15 times. Uh, not as many, uh, translations actually as Neil has. I tend to stick to a, a sort of core of three translations. Um, but when I teach it here at, uh, Emmanuel college, I teach it in a couple different settings in a sophomore ancient medieval lit class. So this is a class that you have to take either this one or the Renaissance and Enlightenment class or the 19th century one or the 20th century one to graduate from Emmanuel College. Mine is usually the last of those four to fill up because people see ancient medieval and they run. <laughs> uh, but what's fun about it is, you know, I get to teach Dante to business majors and to elementary education majors and to people who aren't necessarily literature people first and foremost. Uh, and so one of the things that we really kind of get to explore is this very alien and yet very distinctively Christian way to imagine the human soul and the world and political realities and so on and so forth. Since Emmanuel is a Christian college, I mean, you know, it's a very different kind of Christianity than the, you know, sort of Southern Baptist student body and the Pentecostal affiliation. And that's precisely what makes it cool. I also, for my English minors and English majors, uh, and also people who have electives and are masochists, uh, they can take my European Lit class, and in that one we read the Purgatorio together. Uh, so I teach the Purgatorio every other school year. I teach the Inferno every school year. And honestly, you know, what makes it so much for fun for me to read and teach and come back to is precisely the idea that, okay... Dante is starting out with the same Bible that you're starting out with, but his allegorical poem goes in directions that maybe you would never have considered going. And for these students, you know, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the joke that I always tell them is that, you know, uh, Emmanuel College is the Pentecostal college where Southern Baptists come to a Stone Campbell professor to read Dante. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's just this glorious, you know, range of sort of Western Christian expressions uh so that's you know the context in which i spend most of my time with dante i also try to read through the paradiso every summer so that i can say that i've read all three canticles uh and like i said i've gone through the entire thing probably a dozen or 15 times oh that's interesting and just how do the students I, I know you all. You always have sort of exceptional students who will really um, gravitate towards the text and really invest themselves. I find that when I teach Kafka, there's that sort of core who really um, get into it, right? And then everyone uh -huh. else just sort of deals with it somehow. Um, how do yeah. you find uh -huh. uh, your students uh, with with uh, reacting to this uh, this reading? Well, honestly, what what I find most interesting, and this is one of those things I 
I always sort of encountered these think pieces on the internet about, you know, the grand cultural change and moral therapeutic deism and so on and so forth. I said, that's overblown. You know, my students are still good Southern Baptist kids, you know, hellfire and brimstone and all that good stuff. Uh, but they, a lot of my students are very shocked at the sheer brutality of some of the, you know, contrapasso in the Inferno, which we'll talk about a little bit later, I'm sure. Um, whereas, you know, my students who are more, I guess, have deeper sort of, you know, youth group roots uh, aren't really shocked by that, but they are challenged by the possibility that we read Inferno not as a ge geography text where we say, okay, you know, this is where the various parts of hell are, but as an allegory about the kinds of distortions that can happen to the soul. Okay. Um, very interesting. Okay. Um, so, Neil, I want to go back to you then. Based on that, that's sort of, I think, a, a pretty standard, particularly in a Christian context, Christian college context. I'm pretty sure that what Nathan described is probably a, a general experience that most of us would have with this particular text. For you, Neil, what um, in general terms makes the Inferno such an interesting choice for the Battlefield Book Club? You just talked about it being um, just sort of it came to your mind because it was 130 degrees, right? <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it turned um, but it turned out to be meaningful in other ways. So, what makes it such a, a good book to read for folks in that kind of a situation? Well, in one way, um, I knew from the from the reactions I'd had over time, you know, from my very first class to, you know, to friends like Carter, that it's surprisingly vivid. You know, when you think about what uh, the difficulty for us of reading some what we would call classic texts in the broader sense of anything that was written before our current lifetimes. Um, you know that older texts tend to be difficult, but Dante in so many places, in particularly in the first two uh, books, are it, it can be so vivid. I mean the 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 demons who use their butt for a trumpet. You know. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and the way that the in Canto Twenty Eight that the uh, you know the the people who are schismatics are split in half you know Muhammad's split in half um, his body split in half uh, Bertrand de Born his he's split from his head his head is cut off you know these are these are not things that need a lot of interpretation <laughs> um, and the fact that um, you know, that that warning over hell, uh, which, you know, through me is the way to the city of woe, through me is the way to sorrow eternal. You know, there again, it's very vivid. Uh, so I thought it would be something that of uh, that kids who were not lit majors had very, you know, had no particular aspirations to college would still enjoy it. And they did. Mm hmm. That's good. Um, so I guess this is a good uh, – Nathan, do you have anything to follow up with that? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I, I think that, you know, what Neil just talked about, you know, uh, a lot of my students are going to be, you know, first-generation college students. They don't have a whole lot of literary background, like you said. Some of them uh, have never read a book in its entirety until they come to my class, and I make them read Inferno from cover to cover. Um, and, yeah, I mean, my experience, you know, resonates with what Neil was talking about. You know, these folks – because this is, uh, 
you know, what he calls such a vivid text, what I call such a brutal text, uh, and I think those two are related, uh, you know, they really, uh, they're really able to grab onto it in a way that maybe they wouldn't, uh, you know, a more, I guess, abstract text, for, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think people are often surprised uh, at the fact that particularly I think medieval art in general is really it, it remi- reminds me very much of our contemporary sort of comic book uh, scene. Um, when you look at mm-hmm. sort of medieval uh, painted art, it's not as subtle <laughs> as you would think. Right. No, um, uh, the, the, it doesn't really. I mean, it's very it hits you in the gut. It doesn't necessarily try to uh, attack your brain. And, and I think that um, I think if more people actually looked at and read medieval art, I think that they would uh, be surprised at, at how accessible it, it really is mm-hmm. in so many ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded there's a, uh, I think it's a 12th century painting at the uh, Indianapolis Museum of Art. They, they don't have a whole lot of medieval co- collection, but uh, they have a, a, a painting that's titled uh, Jesus Calls Forth the Souls from Hell. Yeah. But the great thing about this painting is it's about three feet by two feet. And uh, Jesus is about an inch and a half tall over in a corner, and the rest of it is just this utter heavy metal hellscape. And it's a, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's really just a wonderful painting that way. Yeah, yeah, and I, maybe before we get into the details of the poem and its relationship to the battlefield, um, this is just sort of coming to me. Um, the Inferno, particularly, has a pretty massive influence on our modern pop culture like i can think of a couple mm-hmm. of references right off the top of my head not even references where works that have like explicitly tried to engage with it um one that comes to mind is in woody allen's 1997 movie i think deconstructing harry um he goes into hell basically um in a sort of <laughs> fantasy literary sequence to retrieve his girlfriend um and, and so there's woody allen obviously you know who is known to engage with uh, high art uh, and, and to sort of do his own thing with it. But that's one example where I see someone making use of this um, kind of medieval text that still speaks to the modern world. And another one that comes to mind right away is um, Alan Moore when he uh, he sort of took over the Swamp Thing when it was almost dead and kind of reinvented it. And there's a narrative in Swamp Thing where the or there's a storyline in Swamp Thing where the Swamp Thing uh, goes into hell. And, and he basically goes through with a poet, de- a demon poet, who leads him into hell to retrieve his girlfriend, right? And so there's this uh, mm. uh, another very explicit um, uh Kind of not even it's a it's an they use it as allegory in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. Are there other things that you can think of that make the Divine Comedy and particularly Inferno uh, really relevant to a, a modern reader? Well, just uh, the, go whole, ahead, Neil. Yeah. the whole idea of <clears throat> you know this traveling into hell and um, you know to make it connect with modern life it. Yes, uh, I, I felt like these guys really connected with it. And, and actually, it's not a specific uh, cultural reference, but one of, the, one of the things that was I was really surprised at when we got to, towards the end of Inferno, I was talking about getting copies of Purgatorio so we could continue on. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned that, Uh, Virgil was going to get sent back to hell at the top of Mount Purgatory. And my 
<laughs> these guys were, and women, were upset. I mean, they were really mad mm. at Dante. And we ended up, the next book we read was Aeneid. They wanted to read Virgil's mm. book. <laughs> and, okay. Yeah. So, yes, so there's a way in which Dante can still call out feelings from 800 years ago. And, you know, mm. people disagree with Dante. Um, one book that I just love, and I'm actually going to be talking about next month, um, is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. I know that's not exactly contemporary, but that is mapped on the Divine Comedy from the bottom to the top. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, yes, Dante's influence is just amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that idea that, you know... Uh the souls in hell are sort of locking the door from the inside is something definitely that had its influence on C.S. Lewis. I mean, you know, that, that famous scene where uh, the inhabitants of the infernal city of Dis bar the entrance to D Virgil and Dante uh, is something that, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, rings through great divorce. I mean, these are, these are not people who are longing for heaven and can't get in. These are people who say, this corner of hell is mine. You stay out. Yes. Yeah, that that's great. And um, and just before we move on, another book just came to mind that I read as an undergrad, Gloria Naylor's uh, really weird and wonderful book called Linden Hills. Uh, talks mm -hmm. about a community that is designed in a way to explicitly mirror um, Dante's Inferno. And, and and so this is a it's a source text for Western culture in many ways uh and and mm -hmm. and i think there's something there that speaks to the human experience uh that gets us thinking about meaning of life sorts of issues in ways that few yeah. texts ever have and danny can i jump in with one more because i yeah that this just occurred to me uh but the the tradition of storytelling that r really kind of gets its start with uh Charles Dickens's a a, Chris, uh, a Christmas Carol. I almost said a Christmas story, but that's a different movie. Uh, a Christmas Carol. You'll shoot uh, your eye out. Yeah, really has some Dantean overtones to it because when the ghost of Christmas yet to come uh, shows Ebenezer Scrooge, you know the the dark future or the you know the doomed future after his own death, it's really not it never really makes any reference to his own individual torment, but it's always the wrecked human relationships that lie in the ruins of his life. Mm. And if you read through the Inferno carefully, I mean, what, uh, what really gives a lot of the Inferno its terror uh, is that the souls are tormenting each other uh, because they are defined by an absence of divine love. The only remainder is the violence and the aggression and the sin that they that characterize their lives among the living. And so, I mean, the very worst thing that can happen to them is they can be with other people. So, you know, 700 years before Sartre, yeah. uh, we get hell as other people. I was just going to go there. I mean, that, that, that's a direct <laughs> line into, into no exit. Right. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. um, that's awesome. Um, all right. So, uh, let's get into some of the, the poem in particular. Like I said, I've read this, um, I've been reading it again here, um, loosely uh, throughout the semester, but never with the guidance of other people or w with the input of other people. I've never been taught the poem. Uh, and I recently was sitting at Panera with my oldest, my 12-year-old daughter, reading through my copy of, uh, of my library's copy of Inferno, and, and she became very interested in it. And I sort of talked to her about the various levels and 
the various folks who inhabit those levels and and she became like kind of fascinated with the concept and I, whether I don't know that she's kept up with the reading herself but uh, but the concept is very interesting so uh, I guess uh, maybe start with I guess we'll start with Neil with this question um, what specifics from the poem are particularly relatable to the battlefield my um, guess is this will be the bulk of our conversation but what are some particular I don't know, cantos or passages or uh, uh, figures that uh, inhabit this poem that really um, in, inspired the imaginations of your group, Neil? Um, I don't remember which um, canto it is. It's probably 17, but there's some point at which Dante, of course, they're always going down, Dante and Virgil, but there are places where they have to climb up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a place at which Dante has to climb up and he can't talk. He's out of breath and he wants to wait. But Virgil says, no, we have to move and essentially tells him, man up, dude. And <laughs> so they start climbing again. And Dante and every soldier and every aerobic athlete I know has done this. Dante starts talking to show Virgil that he's strong enough to talk and climb. So they, they immediately had this recognition, like they had all done this in some training exercise, that they were just dying, and they made they talked just to show the people around them they were so tough they could do that. So that was like an immediate recognition thing. They were all kind of buzzing about that. So Dante um, is a wonderful storyteller in that way. He really gets human drama, even in this utterly made up landscape. Yeah. And that's a, I can see how that would be a particular moment where folks in the battlefield in Iraq would recognize some of their own experience, right. Uh, in, in what's going mm-hmm. on there. Um, that's interesting. Nathan, do you have anything to follow up with that? Yeah. I mean, one of the passages, uh, and, and Neil, I mean, you can comment on this after I, I kind of introduce it. <laughs> Uh, you know, a lot of my students, you know, when they discover that uh, Ulysses and Diomedes are among the false counselors in the Malibolge, uh, you know, they think, okay, they must have done something after the Trojan War uh, that, you know, rendered them, you know, worthy of this. And, you know, some say, well, it must be the, the voyage of Ulysses out past the, the Rock of Gibraltar and so on and so forth. And I tell them, well, no, I mean, if you if you read it carefully, I mean, they are in that circle precisely because of the Trojan horse. Uh, and, you know, for my students, you know, that's just, you know, unfair because, you know, that's just something you do in battle. And I, and I tell them, you know, this is one of the oldest rules of war. I mean, even though, uh, you know, people broke it and certainly they made records of them breaking it, uh, one of the sort of central tenets of just war uh, use in bellow that that part of it uh, is that you do not offer a false surrender. Uh, you do not surrender yourself with the intent of then ambushing the people to whom you just surrendered. And the reason for that is that completely eliminates any possibility of a good resolution to an armed conflict. Uh, if you have to kill everyone for a battle to be over, if they're not allowed to surrender, and if you're not allowed to accept a surrender because you're worried you're going to get ambushed, what that does is it makes warfare something far more deadly and, and far more universally deadly than it would be otherwise. 
And again, it, it, it's one of those things that, you know, my students find bizarre because they think, okay, you know, Ulysses here is the hero of this story because he found a tactic that would help them to win this battle that otherwise they wouldn't win. And I have to tell them that, you know, for Dante, there are things worse than losing a battle for a soldier, and one of them is the false surrender. Uh, Neil, I mean, wh what do you think about that reading of it? Oh, yeah. And, you know, related, relating Homer to that, the, yeah. Iliad, mm -hmm. the Iliad, which is, you know, I like much better than the Odyssey, actually. <laughs> Most uh, people do. <laughs> yeah, and it, because it, it depicts battle so well. But the Iliad ends before that Trojan horse. Mm -hmm. So even Homer is isolating, um, he's isolating the trickster uh, Odysseus out of his narrative of this great and glorious war and all the fights that lead up to it. So, yeah, you, you can read the Iliad and not know that the war ends with deception. And, right. you know, the uh, in the war that when I was there, certainly the gunfights, the actual warfare ended five weeks into the war in Iraq. Everything else mm -hmm. was booby traps after that. So when our medevac birds got launched, they were mostly going to pick up the victim of a roadside bomb or a mined road or some other deceptive attack, not men facing each other in battle. So yeah, the when we talked about this, they were very sensitive to the idea that, sure, the Ulysses, <laughs> Ulysses cheats and Ulysses, you know, that fake surrender thing, that's terrible standing up and waving a white flag and then having somebody come up behind you and fire that's really bad yeah so yes it yeah there there really is an honor code in war for people who don't get it and even even in a what is now called asymmetric warfare you know where there's a, a weaker side and they're they're they can only fight by deception like in the Iraq war Everybody hates it. I think, mm. as far as I know, the Iraqis hate it too. They would prefer to have a fair fight, but certainly our side hates it. So, mm. yes. So Odysseus gets justly condemned according, accordingly. I mm. wonder if, um, if we could uh, um, uh, step out just a second from the poem and maybe relate this to other ethical questions I like drones for example uh in uh in our modern warfare i mean does this fall under that kind of category for me you know our base launched drones so when i was um i would watch predators fly out with hellfire missiles under their wings and you know f and float around as they do they only go 80 miles an hour mm. so they are they are very much a weapon you can only use if you have absolute air superiority. But they seemed to everybody I knew, you know, people when we talked about drones, they were just the right retribution to people who were doing sneaky things. Like mm. you could find the guy with a, with a drone and get him where he lives. And the way that they usually did it was wait for this guy and his entourage to get away from the village in his Toyota pickup truck 
and then launch a Hellfire missile, and in ideal circumstances, it would go across the village supersonic, and um, the guy would never know it what hit him because it was supersonic, but the whole village that had to harbor him or wanted to harbor him would hear that missile go by and see his Toyota turn to vapor. Mm. So, yeah, uh, in that context, as a retribution for the other kind of sneaky warfare, it seemed just. Uh, that's a, that's so interesting. I this is the kind of thing that I was so excited about, frankly, in talking with you because this is a, a perspective, obviously, that uh, is outside of the purview that I've ever uh, anything that I've ever experienced, and, and so um, it's such a pleasure and an honor to talk to somebody who's actually knows what they're talking about <laughs> uh, in a way that uh, people removed from the, the battlefield don't. And so um, that's interesting. Um, are there other uh, aspects? Of, I mean, what about the when they pass the gate, for example, at the beginning, that warning sign? Does that, I mean, speak to people in the battlefield? Um, does that remind them of entering into the, the, the warscape itself? Or Yeah, I think when, when they read it, though, it was kind of funny. I mean, the, the army is just uh, awash in rules. So the idea that there would be this you know, this big warning sign, it, it would be like all the other warning signs they're giving us. Mm. You know, don't do this, don't do that, don't mm. drink, don't, uh, yes. And um, anyway, so yes, it just fit in the plethora of rules that, okay, you're, you're going to go someplace dangerous, so you have to have a safety briefing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Interesting, um, Nathan. Uh, do you have anything to add about the 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 warning on the on the or the on the entry gate? Well, I think that you know one of the characteristics of Inferno is that it is an eternal damnation. Uh, so, I mean, in, in some ways, you know, I, I have to tell my students that uh, you know this is necessarily going to be an alien thing because one of the characteristics of human existence is that we do have randomness in our lives. Uh, something very, very good could happen to us an hour from now, or something very, very bad could happen to us an hour from now, and we just never know. And I mean, that, that sign at the gate of Inferno uh, just says, you know, abandon hope. Uh, whatever happens an hour from now is going to be worse than it was an hour ago. Mm. And that is, you know, an entirely different order of existence than anyone who is outside of that gate can, can even imagine. Uh, and, and, for Dante, who's a very philosophical writer in a lot of ways, you know, this is one of many sort of thought experiments in the Inferno, right? Uh, if we imagine our world as governed by Fortuna, as, as Virgil tells him about, and I forget what canto that is, um, then what does it look like to exist where there is no Fortuna, there is no randomness, there is reliable, predictable, inevitable, every hour it's worse, kind of descent. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's well, what I tell my students is, I mean, really some of these philosophical thought experiments, if you sit with them for a while, they are ultimately far more terrifying than even the, you know, demons with whips tearing your skin off. Because that stuff, I mean, that's, that's slasher film stuff. It's shocking at first. And then you kind of get numb to it. Uh, but the idea that, you know, nothing will ever get better that is terrifying on a sort of existential level, even beyond the gory. Uh, and likewise, you know, when, when this is one of the scenes that, you know, I have my students read and then we talk about it at some length, you know, 
uh, when Virgil and Dante see the souls lining up at the banks of the Acheron to be carried across into the second circle. Uh, what's no, what's notably absent there is any kind of guard. There are no demons guarding them. There are no mythological creatures keeping them from fleeing. And it's because their desire for God has been eliminated. So the only thing that they desire is their own damnation. So everyone there is going to hell because they want to. And again, that's something that, you know, it's not as immediately shocking and gory as, you know, snakes that bite you in the crotch and steal your body. Uh, But it is horrifying on a psychological, philosophical level far beyond that, I think. Okay, that's it. So, Neil, were your uh, readers, were they more, did they relate to the text on those psychological, excuse me, philosophical levels? Or did they relate to the text on more kind of allegorical levels that related to their sort of lived experience on the battlefield? Yeah, and it, it was that the allegorical in the sense of that correspondence you can make between, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, this is this and this is that. Because allegory, uh, you know, invites you to make correspondences. So, no, I mean, in in other discussions I'd had subsequently, or, I mean, before Iraq, um, you know, with in like academic settings, what Nathan was talking about came up more. But, you know, they were... In that particular context, they were reading a book sometimes for the first time straight through mm-hmm. and and finding out that a classic book itself doesn't necessarily have to be dreary. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, I would say the reactions were on a much lower level. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they were either enjoying it or arguing with it or saying, does this really last forever? I mean, that... That warning, the way Nathan put it about, you know, that you really have to abandon all hope, I could see them rebelling against. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they just, well, maybe this will, like, maybe they'll let some of them out. I mean, that was the whole thing with Virgil. Like, dude, Virgil got screwed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, they, they didn't want that to be the case. So, mm-hmm. yes, I mean, the, the implications of Inferno are terrible i so i want to like say something then i think you you said neil that your readers dealt with this on a lower level and i don't i don't know that i i would hire put it in that kind of a hierarchy um i I feel like there may be a problem in academia (laughs) that uh we are sort of limiting um the experience of readers of books like this to these kind of more abstract uh, uh, applications when I think probably Dante was not thinking of it in this way. I think he wrote it in such a visceral way uh, in order to uh, make it concrete for people. And I'm reminded, I have a colleague here, um, Dr. Elizabeth Mansley, uh, and she has, uh, she runs this sort of prison book club um, in in a local um, federal prison that is uh, near where we live here. And, um, I've been able to participate in a couple of uh, sessions with that book club and reading, we read uh, Philip Roth's The Human Stain um, together. And, and I've read that book and I've written about that book and, and, and all sorts of, you know, academic, in, in strictly academic ways. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, reading it with them was entirely different. And it was so um, fascinating because they were not 
interested in those kind of formal uh, theoretical questions. They were interested in the people and in the experience of the people and mm-hmm. how that experience of those people um, made them feel about their experience in prison, right? And, and and I felt like there's something that is hugely gratifying about reading a book that we've confined to academic settings um, and breaking it out of that sort of mold and reading it with people outside of that setting. I think it opens up the book to uh, a bazillion possibilities. Mm-hmm. And Danny, if I could just offer just a slight adjustment to that, I think Dante was interested in that visceral you know, literal level that you're talking about. Yeah. I think he was also interested in the analogical and moral and the, and you know, uh, allegorical levels, uh, simply because he wrote about it himself. He said that, you know, when you read a poem, if you can only get one meaning out of it, you're not reading the whole poem yet. So, I mean, I think that he would probably affirm and approve of the kind of reading that says, okay, you know, this is just like my experience. And he would also approve of the reading that says, okay, let's look at just what's going on in this picture. And he would also approve of the philosophical reading. And he would also, and he would also, and he would also. Yeah. That, that's part of the cool thing about medieval literature more generally is that it always invites more than one kind of reading. And honestly, that's one of the ways that the medievals were smarter than us in a lot of important ways. Yeah, and that's a point well taken. I think you're right. Um, I, I didn't mean to. I, I I guess I placed it in my own sort of hierarchy. Uh, uh. <laughs> uh, no, that that is that's a, a good point. And, and but in our culture today, uh, people don't read this outside of the context of school, right? I mean, not many yeah. people at least. I mean, I'm again broad brushstrokes, uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, largely uh, people don't read texts like this outside of officially like uh, academically condoned contexts and, and I think what's so exciting about what Neil has been has done um, with the book is that it's opened it up it opens it up um, to a richer kind of reading experience beyond what academia can provide now Danny do you mind if I ask Neil about one nope. more passage because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this possibility Neil one of the uh, books that I've read here recently that, that really has gotten me thinking in this direction. That's why I was so excited to come on this show with you and Danny is uh, Brian Dorries is the writer and he translates Athenian tragedies, you know, from Sophocles and Aeschylus and whatnot. And then they do basically readers theaters precisely for combat veterans. And one of the things that he finds most often in those settings is that these old stories from Euripides and Sophocles and whatnot about betrayal are things that really resonate with combat soldiers. So when you got down to Cocytus, when you've got the, the traitors against country and the traitors against comrades and the traitors against benefactors, how did your readers respond to those sinners in the, in that lowest circle of Inferno? Well, they, um, <laughs> they, you know, they're pretty sensitive to betrayal. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, they they thought it was interesting that Judas would, you know, simply get the worst twist on, you know, what happened to Caesar. I mean, the whole idea that the worst thing that you could ever do in history was to betray Julius Caesar, that, that was probably interesting. I mean, most, <laughs> yeah. I, I'd say about half the, half of the, group was some had some sort of christian upbringings a couple of them were militant atheists mm-hmm. uh, but 
Yeah, the idea that Judas got the worst punishment in something called the Divine Comedy, you know, made perfect sense to them. But, you know, Brutus and Cassius, like, wow. Um, mm -hmm. you know, that, yes, so they, they really resonated with that. But they also liked the whole idea, um, you know, of the map, you know, that Satan got pitched out of heaven and he, he creates the ditch and shoves all the dirt up that makes Mount Purgatory. Because we, we talked mm -hmm. a lot about that. In the military, moving over ground is a big deal. You know, we all learn land navigation. Uh, I still have an old-fashioned watch because I can get direction, you know, with the sun and a watch, right? So, so the ground made... Of all the the groups I've talked to or read this with, that group was much more interested in things like the specifics of the betrayal and mm -hmm. the way that the ground works. So, yeah, so Satan being, you know, jammed in there for his betrayal of God or setting himself up against God, and then he gets to chew on the worst <laughs> betrayer yeah. in history, that... That's pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. What uh, Nathan is a scholar. <laughs> um, what? Why did Dante, whatever the opposite of privilege is, uh, why did he condemn? I suppose betrayal as the worst. I mean, what? What is it about his experience that he was trying to get, convey there? Well, what makes each sin worse than the last is that it takes more ethical and moral capacity to commit the sin. So the sins of disordered appetite, lust and avarice and gluttony and so on and so forth, uh, those are sins that, you know, a, an especially bad dog could commit. Uh, you know, uh, when you get to the sins of violence, you're talking about actually violating some sort of order, whether it be the life of the other person, whether it be a political order like Attila the Hun did by overrunning the Roman Empire, uh, whether it be suicide, violating your own life uh and you know of course sodomy for dante was a a violation of the natural biological order once you get to the sins of fraud you have to have even more capacity because you have to be able to convince your mark that you have their best interests at heart before you can commit that sin so in order to commit pandering or flattery or uh thievery from churches and it's, it's a very specific kind of thievery he's talking about or bad counsel, your mark, the other person, has to believe that you are actually acting in love towards them, so you are trading love in exchange for a lesser good. Mm. Uh, but then when you get to betrayal, you are committing a fraudulent act against something that constitutes your core identity, so your family, your country, the people who are your benefactors. Those are the kinds of people who make you who you are and you are committing fraudulent violence against them and therefore destroying your own soul. And that's why some of those souls in Cocytus actually descended to hell before they stopped breathing and they just replaced their soul with a demon because they had shown such disregard for their own eternal soul that they that you know basically the divine order said, you can't live in a human body anymore, screw you. Hmm. In those words, that, that doesn't, yeah, sound, basically. <laughs> doesn't sound divine. Um, uh, that's, so, Neil, uh, just a, a side question based on – that's a very kind of theological reason. So basically mm -hmm. the most – the deeper you get, 
you get so deep because you become more and more and more like Satan and, and it becomes more and more and more an act of willful disobedience. And the closer you mm-hmm. get to that sort of thing, the closer you get to Satan himself uh, in, in the in the pit. Um, and so, Neil, your readers, were they religiously, did they join this out of, I mean, boredom or did they join this out of intellectual reasons or were they kind of religiously minded folks or some combination? Um maybe one or two it was religious most of them it was some sort of intellectual aspiration i mean there are although it's a it's a more of a minority than i would wish there there are still you know there have been since world war ii people who joined just to get uh to get an education you know i'm going to serve a few years and go to college and so most of the most of the people in the group were more of that bent um the the kids that i came to know as um i'll just call them youth group refugees they uh (laughs) we all are (laughs) really so i i really did meet kids who just you know they didn't they didn't want to go to a christian college and sorry and they didn't want to stay in youth group culture and they considered Sadly, they they thought going to Iraq was the way out of that. Now, I would talk to them separately, but they just, you know, they were turning their back on religion for a while and wanted to make their own way. And the army was the fastest way out. So they took Mm -hmm. it. So, yeah, I mean, these guys were really interested in the poem itself. And I talked more than I thought I would because of questions about the whole context of where the Divine Comedy fits in the world of literature and how inspirational it was. I mean, for the ones who knew of C.S. Lewis, they just they tended to know of him as the guy who wrote Narnia, not that, um, you know, that he was a critic of medieval literature and Renaissance literature. and. And that Lewis said that this is, you know, the, this, the similes in Dante are the, the best in poetry in Western culture, period. So, yeah, they, they wanted to know about the larger context. And, and they felt like this was a little bit of a start towards their eventual college education. Mm. And what a great start that is. Um, um, Neil, I want to ask, I, I got to know, like, what are some favorite uh experiences or favorite particular parts of the of the poem itself that you found um gratifying in teaching what were some memorable experiences in specific uh areas well i mean the most popular besides you know the whole thing with satan himself you know that he freezes the bottom of hell um you know for people who may or may not have seen battlefield injuries they mostly thought Count Ugolino was pretty cool and funny. Uh, you know, where if when I read it in a college class, that was gross, right? You know, one guy eating the back of another guy's head off for eternity. Mm-hmm. They weren't bothered by the gore and they just loved the, the flying farting demons. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, again, the, the whole progress of it, the, the idea of covering all that ground uh you know they they really liked the way that the you know you would they they would talk about the footprints you know they really noticed that kind of stuff that 
Mm. Virgil is a spirit. Dante is a human. He makes footprints in the sand where Dante doesn't. And he has to be helped from level to level where, you know, Virgil uh, can just go down as a spirit, but Dante's got a body. He has to ride on the back of some monster to get down to another level. Mm. Yeah, they liked all of that. I, was this where the inspiration for that cheesy poem, Footprints in the Sand, came from? <laughs> I don't think so. I <laughs> hope not. <laughs> I don't know. I think that would be kind of awesome. That would almost redeem that. <laughs> All those posters I grew up looking at. Um, <laughs> um, Nathan, what about you in the classroom? What is your sort of favorite? Uh, I, and I, you're reading it from a, in, in the context of a religious institution, right? But um, Oh, sure, but sure. What is your sort of favorite then? aspect to teach i know you like to provoke your students uh and so i'm sure this poem gives you plenty of options to do that oh absolutely absolutely and i and i will go ahead and say i mean obviously it's not uh a precise analogy to a military unit but uh because emmanuel doesn't have a statement of faith to enroll as a student i do get you know students who are agnostic and atheist right reading this and you know uh, it, some of those same conversations that neil was nodding to uh really do come up in this context too but uh, you know, a couple of the passages that I, I think my students, you know, respond most strongly to uh, are places like uh, the circle of the, the virtuous pagans that we talked about, the place that Virgil has to return to, uh, and the idea that's very, very different from either the youth groups they attended or the youth groups that their friends attended that said, if you commit any old sin, you know, you, you look for a second and a half too long at a pretty girl, then you're just as deserving of hell as Attila the Hun is. Um, Dante doesn't hold to that. He says that there are certain people who don't deserve torment, but because they were not baptized, uh, they do not enter into salvation. And, you know, that is very alien and in a lot of ways offensive to a lot of my students. But I tell them, you know, okay, uh, Dante is starting with the same Bible that you're starting with, so... You know, it really comes down to a question of how do we interpret this differently rather than how do we, um, you know, is one person biblical and the other one not biblical, right? It becomes even more pronounced when we go to the purgatorio, and this is mainly with English minors, English majors, so you don't get nearly as much of the, um, how, how to put this, English minors and English majors have a lot at stake in not appearing to be offended, yeah. So you don't get a lot of that sort of visceral reaction. We're posers. But you do get a lot of reactions of, you know, okay, this purgatory stuff, it's not in the Bible. And, you know, what I always have to come back at them with is uh, your vision of the underworld. Give me chapter and verse on it because we can interpret it differently. So, you know, in that context, I mean, you know, one of the really fascinating things is 700 years ago, how were they reading the same text that we read differently from how we read it? And what tools do we have intellectually to say that one reading is better than another? Um, that's interesting. Um, I, I, I know we've had these kind of conversations privately before. Um, uh -huh. and, and so I'm trying to, <laughs> to not just rehash old, old ground. But I do think that the text offers an opportunity to... Uh, I guess interrogate one's own system of beliefs by juxtaposing oh, sure. it against. And and off, I'm reminded. So I, this semester I'm teaching a, a class on the literature of Pittsburgh, 
Um, it's a, mm-hmm. our biggest local city and, uh, and it's actually got a great literary um, history to it. And in the um, African-American traditions that we've read out of uh, Pittsburgh, August Wilson, of course, and John Edgar Wideman as well, you see this really interesting um, and, and purposeful attempt to conflate uh, Christian and pagan, let's say just broadly non-Christian, like other traditions, uh, in these African-American experiences. Um, and what is created out of that mixture is something that a Orthodox sort of Christian believer would find heretical, right? Um, but mm-hmm. um, they're not living that same experience, right? And so I'm wondering if there's some, because I mean, Dante is going into a, a hell that is sort of laid out i mean so you have a christian being led by a roman by a by a, a roman poet right a pagan poet right. uh into into hell and many of the heroes uh that he encounters along the way are from pagan traditions and so dante is doing a similar thing is what i'm saying uh he's mm-hmm. he's kind of mixing christian and pagan traditions um and, and so i'm wondering if that's some of the means by which it's challenging to um to a christian reader Oh, sure. And and his mixtures are very visible to a 21st century Southern Baptist student. Uh, the real challenge, uh, and again, this is where you know a lot of the fun comes when you're teaching it, uh, is getting the 21st century Southern Baptist student to see the places where their own faith is also an alloy rather than a pure metal. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that is uh, not a conversation I'm going to dig into at any depth right now. Uh, but, you know, for instance, you know, the mixture of Protestant Christianity and John Locke, for instance, or the mixture of, you know, Protestant Christianity um, and something like Immanuel Kant's ethics, right? Uh, these are things that are very alien to a first century text, and yet my students, you know, tend to think of them simply as biblical until someone points out the mixture, yeah. right? Even worse so, is Ayn Rand, right? Um, well, yeah, I, I didn't go that far, but yeah. I... <laughs> um, Neil, uh, do you? So, was there any way that the this text challenged? I mean, your your readers on the battlefield. Was there a way that it um, preyed on their conscience on some level? Well, again, you know, this was something that was new to them in so many ways. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but most of them had never read poetry. You know, so that, mm-hmm. you know, it started, there were so many things that were new all at once. So the the questions, you know, were something like, <laughs> I mean, really, are there other poems like this? You know, is, yeah. is this unique by itself? And and I would talk about Longfellow telling stories with poems. And, you know, the fact that, that yes, there's a great tradition of epic poems that kind of died out. And in pop culture, poetry is now song. You know, there isn't, poetry is very it's a very small thing in, in 21st century Western culture. I mean, compared to what it was, but yeah, I mean the, the whole idea of telling stories in poems was so foreign that we talked about structure and things that, you know, I hadn't really thought of before because I went to school and I was born in 1953. So I went to school when 
people still had to memorize a few poems in school. Mm-hmm. Which they did not. You know, some of them had never really had literally never read a poem before. So their very first poem was the Divine Comedy. Well, that's a good start, I suppose. <laughs> well, Jesuit says you can jump into Western poetry from anywhere. So we really tried that out. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you had um, other, have you taught other or led groups about other works? I've been in a couple of C.S. Lewis groups and I'm a member of the New York C.S. Lewis Society. So I've talked about Dante in, you know, once we stopped reading C.S. Lewis for three months and read the Divine Comedy in a, in a book group I was in in the 90s. Mm. So, yeah, so I, I've talked about it with, um, you know, small groups or as part of doing something else or just because I'm a geek about Dante and I could bring it up in almost any context. <laughs> but the Battlefield group itself, it, it this was the one reading that you did? Yes, with a with a structured group. That's the only time I'd ever done a been part of a group that that was its reason to exist, which you know just made the idea that we switched to the Aeneid even more interesting to me. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole idea that we you know that they had to go away from it and see what Virgil wrote. Now that the whole idea that the the possibility that poetry as a storytelling method was open. They wanted Virgil's poem. And then um, towards the end, some of us started reading Purgatorio, but most of us went home by the time we got halfway through it. Okay. Hmm. Um, Have you kept in touch with uh, the folks in this group? A couple of them, but they mostly weren't in my unit. Hmm. Um, I kept in touch with the – well, there's a, a one guy who was a was an enlisted man at the time, and he's a captain. I see him about once a year. Uh, there was a cook who's since retired, um, and sh- so she, yeah, she was, yeah, I think she retired um, because you can retire at 39 from the army if you start soon enough. Um, and then there is this woman who was a drill sergeant before Iraq and was in charge of convoy training. Um, And I kept in touch with her. Some of the convoy guards were her people. And she just thought it was funny that, you know, you're teaching my, my people a damn poem. (laughs) I teach them them how to light people up out on the road. You're teaching them a damn poem, Gus. (laughs) Gus. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Neil, I want to I want to close up here in a little bit. I, I don't want uh, to take up too much of your time. But are there other things that you wanted to talk about um, that I haven't asked? Uh, no, just the idea that, you know, the response to this, um, the fact that most of the people who started it stuck with it, at least all the way through Inferno, that they um you know, that for people, especially the ones who never read a poem before and just thought that that was the weirdest thing in the world, you know, they got the idea that a poem could tell a story, that a poem could be relevant to their life. I mean, for me, that was the best result of it of all. It was it was a really gratifying experience in 
<clears throat> in a not very gratifying place. <laughs> That's uh, probably to say the least, right? Um, Nathan, uh, do you have any, uh, I, I have one more question, but I want to make sure that you get uh, your say in. Well, I mean, you know, I always tell folks that, I mean, that, that general ed sophomore literature class is one of my favorite classes to teach. Uh, although I really enjoy a lot of the other stuff I do, you know, uh, I enjoy teaching old English. I enjoy teaching rhetorical theory. But the reason that I like that one is precisely for, you know, the reasons that Neil was getting into there is that a lot of these students whose backgrounds in high school were not very literary are encountering, you know, narrative poems for the very first time and, you know, encountering this idea that we can think rationally and in a disciplined manner about sin and that we can disagree about what the nature of that category is, right? Uh, for a lot of these students, you know, this is a theology class as much as it is a literature class. And for that reason, I mean, it's, it's very, very gratifying to read Dante with kinesiology majors. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, uh, that's a pretty good segue actually into my last question is in, it, because I'm interested in the fact that, uh, this is an activity that Neil's just described for us where Dante, like I said, has been broken out of the kind of traditional classroom setting. And I know, Nathan, you do, and, and when I was working with you, um, I you let me help out um, with the Socrates Cafe stuff, which is mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. a paracurricular uh, club sort of thing, um, setting, where we would talk about this kind of thing, not a poem necessarily, but philosophical questions. Um, and there was something... I think we actually have one later today, Danny. Oh, oh I so miss those. I tell everybody <laughs> I said hello if anyone still knows me there. But um, we'll do. Yeah, but I, I I totally miss that. We'd go to the library and sit around, and sip cappuccino, and talk about this stuff, and uh, it was awesome. But um, I, uh, I I do. I one of the things that struck me about the experience was that <clears throat> there was something about breaking it out of this shell. This where you have to you know, grade and evaluate ideas uh, that the mm -hmm. classroom requires and making it uh, like an act of, you know, you're not being conscripted into something. You're, you're actually joining it willfully. Uh, and, and, mm -hmm. and therefore, I just felt like there's something that's more ideal about uh, hitting these ideas, studying great books and thinking thoughts together outside of the structures of academia. Um, and I think, uh, I guess I'd like you guys to talk about, uh, are there any lessons from Neil's experience that the civilian can, uh, can take, uh, take away from this? Mm -hmm. uh, Neil, I'll go ahead and lead so you can have the last word. Uh, but one of the things that I, I really appreciate about Neil's story uh, is that it's a reminder that these books don't have their home in the academy. Uh, now, they have their historical origins uh, under a patronage system in the 14th century and, you know, a rich man named Big Dog. Uh, although, in, you know, in Italian, it's con grande, so it doesn't sound nearly as crass. Um, but really, it, it doesn't live exclusively there either. Uh, but this is a text that, because it does have that, that inherent capacity to grab our imagination on several different levels. It can live in the classroom and it can live in the army unit and it can live in all kinds of different places. And and, and in comic books, you know, like Danny was talking about, you know, I was actually thinking uh, just recently about, you know, the uh, spawn comic books from the early nineties 
that really relied on a Dantean mythology. But what's really cool about, you know, first of all, teaching it in that sort of gen ed setting where the students, you know, come in thinking, I've got to do this to graduate, but a few of them come out thinking, I got to do that. And then in the, you know, Socrates Cafe setting where, you know, these ideas don't have a grade attached to them, so you have a certain liberty with them that you might not have in the classroom, uh, is that the classroom is a place where we can engage with these things with a discipline and with an intentionality that maybe we don't get other places. But in the Socrates Cafe or in the Army Reading Group, we can engage with them with a liberty that maybe we lose out on if we only do the classroom. So I really kind of dig the fact that, you know, what, what Neil is doing is happening out there, not because I think that it should supplant and replace and annihilate what I do, but because when both of them are happening, some really cool things can happen in that cross-pollination. So, Neil, take the last word. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, these guys obviously had a choice, and there were thousands of soldiers on this base. So, it, you know, it was a very small group who just decided they wanted to do something, you know, to not just go to the House of Pain gym or to wherever else they could amuse themselves, you know, the video game recreation area or something, that they they wanted to learn something. So that free will, you know, is central to the divine comedy and free will is what got these guys in the door. And so it for me, it, it, you know, it's it's always going to be in my mind a celebration that way. Like, you know, you give people a chance and they can find something like this and be fascinated with it. And for the most part, they were. So I, I really enjoyed the whole experience. Yeah, that's and I really have enjoyed this conversation. You know, I really appreciate you reaching out to the show and, and first of all, and and, uh, and and sharing this with us. And um, and I very much appreciate you being willing to come on and talk with me and Nathan about this really kind of stupendous thing uh, that you did. And, and I hope you're proud of it because it, it's, it's really cool. Um, as we sign off, I want to uh, kind of point you to the rest of the shows in our network. Um, we have, we're part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Nathan is a, a, a member of our flagship podcast, the uh, Christian Humanist Podcast. And actually, a recent, uh, it might be the last episode I listened to at least, the, the one about uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, is, uh, I wonder, has there been a, a, a role-playing game version of Dante? <laughs> Maybe this could be a... Uh, there's been a video game version, yes. And actually, the uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 2nd Edition, which is what I played in high school, uh, has a sort of Dantean afterworld that, you know, in these supplemental adventures you can go and presumably rescue damsels in distress from, because that seems to be the ongoing theme even though let, let's let's be clear that in Dante it's the damsel that does the rescuing. Oh, <laughs> well, that's one for the Christian Feminist Podcast, which is another show <laughs> in our uh, in our network. Uh, uh, Victoria Reynolds Farmer was just on my show recently, the last episode, and uh, mm-hmm. and so they've been doing some wonderful things. Uh, I forget they just released one this morning as we talk, and I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, is it with ah uh, yeah, and, and I actually I actually put that online, and I've already forgotten. She, so. Is, is, uh, is it Carla's thing? Uh, she is called or something. She like? is called. That's yes. it. Yep. Okay. Yeah, Carla Ewert's uh, project that she was she was working on there, um, and we also have the City of Man podcast, which uh, with Coyle Neal and Ed Song, and they do some really amazing uh, back and forth 
political uh, dialogue between a conservative and a uh, progressive uh, Christian perspective. And their most recent one was about libertarianism, which was an interesting one to listen to since they both sort of counter that uh, philosophy individually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we also have a science podcast, uh, The Book of Nature, uh, with Todd Pedler, who's a, a multi-time participant here on the Sectarian Review as well, uh, Dan Dawson, and uh, sometimes Charles, Charles Hackney. Hackney. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Hackney's been busy <laughs> lately. So um, so um, take a listen uh, around the network. If you go to christianhumanist.org, you'll find links uh, to all of those episodes. And you can always go to iTunes and subscribe to all these things. I would personally appreciate it if you came, uh, went to our iTunes page and left us a review that helps other people find the show. Other people who are awesome and cool like Neil who have done amazing things in their life and can share them with us uh, that's how this sort of thing happens um, uh, gentlemen thank you so much for uh, for joining us today um, please uh, uh, feel free to come back anytime uh, you're more than welcome thank you thank you Danny